this week on Hope for the Broken. We've got to come to a place in our walk with the Lord where we value divine, heavenly wisdom above the wisdom of fellow man. Where is it that we tend to turn to first when we need information? We tend to turn to somebody else, right? That's the seeking of human wisdom. I am not saying that God doesn't use wise counsel around us to help us make godly choices. My point is this, do we pursue human wisdom at the expense of divine wisdom? Welcome to Hope for the Broken, the audio podcast ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Mount Pleasant, Texas. I'm your host, Austin Mahoney. We exist to become a gospel-centered community, redeeming brokenness through hope in Jesus Christ. At Trinity, we believe we are all broken and in need of the redeeming hope found in Jesus. For more information about our church, visit us on our website at trinitytx.org. This week, we continue our series called Life Lessons. Here's our pastor, Chris Wigley, with part 19 titled, Waiting on God. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel. It's 1 Samuel, and we're in a teaching series that we started part two back in January called Life Lessons. And we're taking a look at life lessons, things that we learn in our current day and time through the study of the book of 1 Samuel. And we've learned so much in this second installment. We talked about the epic story of David and Goliath. We saw the friendship that God allowed to form between Jonathan and David. We saw the, the dangers of jealousy. And when jealousy and envy begin to take root in our hearts, the dangers that lie there. We talked about how God uh, is with us when we're on the run. It feels like maybe we're not running from somebody, but, but it just feels like we're waiting on God to show up. Well, today we're going to continue that theme as we look at a message that I've entitled, Waiting on God. This is exactly what we're going to learn from King David in chapters 23 and 24 of 1 Samuel. Now I'm curious, how many of you, by a show of hands, you remember using these kinds of maps? Anybody in here want up to? Y'all are old, right? Uh, I had to call a, a friend of a friend of ours. He's a member here of our church to see if he had one of these, and he did. He said, "I got to get it back to him because they're going to Waco this week." So. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, but these, I remember having my parents getting these maps, uh, because, uh, we would go on family vacations and we'd need to see the best route. I can remember there's even mile markers there. You know, I'd have to add up the mileage. That was my job. Just so my dad would map out several different routes. We'd pick the shortest one. And, and then when we'd cross the state lines into another state, well, you had to stop at the visitor center and get that state's map so that you could see how to journey through this. And, and, you know, this, this was the hard way of navigating uh, on, on a road trip. Nowadays, we just ask Siri to give us directions, and Siri takes us wherever it is that we want to go. And when we get off track, she lovingly nudges us back onto track, right? And she says things like recalculating, or you've missed the wrong turn, or you take a U-turn here, right? Um, and so we, we've grown used to using GPS getting around everywhere. Well, In much the same way, David is going to have to rely upon the old way of navigating his life. He's going to have some choices that he has to make. And he's going to have to listen to the Lord and listen to the Lord's timing in order to know which way to go and how to react. 
Maybe you're here today and you would say, you know what, I, I would really like to know. How am I supposed to know the direction that God wants me to take? Maybe you're here and you're considering a major decision in your life. You're at a fork in the road and, and you don't know which direction to take. How do I know what is God's will for my life? How do I know what God is leading me to do? We're going to discover some of those things as we talk about waiting on God here today. We're going to also look at King Saul. You know, David was going to rely upon God's word to serve as a navigation for him, but King Saul is not going to rely upon God's word. He's going to make choices in his own uh, ability, his own human uh, decision-making ability, and he's going to be led astray time and time again. And we're going to see that disaster will continue to follow Saul as he takes that approach. So here's what I want to do today. I want to recap the story of chapters 23 and 24. We'll visit some key verses along the way. And then I want to take a look at two life lessons that I hope will serve as as helps to us as we often find ourselves in a season where we're waiting on God. We're waiting for God's direction. Chapter 23 of 1 Samuel continues David's life on the run. Remember, it's a 10-year span where David is literally running for his life from King Saul. And while he's hiding out in a cave, David learns that the city of Kilah is being attacked by the Philistines. It's harvest season, and they're beginning to harvest their crops, and the Philistines are moving in to steal those crops. And David's heart is bothered by that news. And David wants to do something about it. And so David wants to know, God, is it your will that me and the men that we have assembled here in this cave, that we go and help defend Kyla? And he prays about it, and God gives him a resounding yes. I want you and your men, I want you all to go and defend this city from this attack. When David gets that word from God, he goes back to his men and he says, hey, here's the plan. We're going to go in, we're going to defend Kyla from the Philistines. And guess what? His men were not on board. They said, well, wait a minute, are you sure you heard God right? I think you ate a bad burrito last night, David. You're not hearing from the Lord. This is not a wise idea. And so David then takes the advice of his friends and what he feels like God has called him to do, and he goes back to God. He says, God, listen, our our men, the the guys that you have assembled to surround me and to support me in this endeavor, they're, they're saying that we shouldn't go. Have I heard you wrong? And God answers back David again. He says, no, you haven't heard me wrong. It's my desire for you and your men to go and to defend the city of Kilah. Well, that was all David needed, all his men needed, and there they went on their way to, to Kilah. And they were, they were successful in defending the city. But while they were there, they became very public. Everybody began to know who David is. David's the national hero that is now on the run from King Saul. And so news began to get out that David was in Kilah, and Saul heard this news. And Saul thinks, this is my opportunity. I've been looking for an opportunity to catch Saul, or catch David. This is my opportunity. Look at verses 7 and 8 of 1 Samuel 23 as it reveals Saul's thinking here. And now it was told Saul that David had come to Kilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that is gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to go to war, to go down to Kilah to besiege David and his men. Now, I want to point something out here. 
how delusional Saul is. Saul, did you catch that in verse 7? It says, Saul says that God has given David into his hand. In other words, Saul thinks that it is God's will that David be killed. He's convinced himself. This must be God's will. Look at the circumstances. This must be God's will. You know, whenever I survey all of history, I see evidence repeated time and time again of where people acted in ungodly ways but did so in the name of God. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, we as humans, we are so quick to assign God's name to our desires when that is completely false and apart from what God has for us. And and Saul is proof of that here. David and his men are successful in defending Kilah, and he gets word that Saul now knows and is on his way. So David does something. He says, I need to get Abiathar. Remember Abiathar from last week? He's the escape that, that uh, he's the priest that escaped the massacre at Nob. And he's with David and he becomes David's high priest. And so he's like, I need to get uh, wisdom from God here. I need Abiathar. And he orders Abiathar to bring the ephod. An ephod was a, uh, a dress a, a breastplate, but it wasn't metal, it was woven, that priests would wear in this day. And in this woven breastplate were woven 12 gems, and each gem representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, tucked in behind that woven piece were two more stones called Urim and Thummim. And these stones were used on occasion in the Old Testament to determine God's will. They would kind of like cast lots with these two stones. And however they landed, they determined that must be God's will for them. So David tells Abiathar, I need you to put this on. I need you to act as a high priest, and I need you to use these two stones and ask God some important questions. David wants to know, is Saul coming to Kilah? And through the use of the human and the thummim, God said, yes, he's on his way. And then he inquires of God again through the same means. He said, are the people of Kilah going to protect me or are they going to out me? And God says, they're going to out you. They're not going to protect you. So as a result, David and his men, they go on the run again. And they're running towards the caves, hiding from Saul and his army. And at this point, as you can imagine, David is getting tired of this. He's growing weary. I mean, when is this going to end? Like, it seems like it's a relentless pursuit. Like, when is this ever going to be over? God, when am I ever going to realize what you have promised of me? You've said I'm the next anointed king of Israel. When is this going to happen? And there he is waiting and running. But God is good to David even in the midst of all of that. And one of the ways that God is good to David is that he sends his good buddy Jonathan to come visit him. In verses 15 through 18 of 1 Samuel 23, we see this encouragement of David. It says, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, that David was in the wilderness of Zaaf at Horesh, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh, and he strengthened his hand in God. In other words, he encouraged David, but I want you to see how he encouraged David. He refers him back to God's promise, verse 17. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. 
And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Aren't you grateful for the people that show up in your life seemingly just the right time, with just the right words? They're gifts from God to encourage you. Even in the midst of waiting, God encourages us. So Saul is pursuing David. And he begins to close in on him. In fact, the scriptures tell us that Saul is on one side of the mountain while David is on the other. We also learned that Saul has about 3,000 men at his disposal where David has 600. And Saul begins to encompass this mountain. And it's not looking good for David. What is David going to do? He has nowhere to run. He's literally between a rock and a hard place. And it looks like Saul is going to find him. And when he finds him, we know what Saul's intentions are. But just as Saul's army begins to close in on David, guess what happens? News breaks that the Philistines are attacking. King Saul has to abandon this mission of finding David and go and take care of the Philistines. You know what God did? God intervened. God stepped in. He came to the rescue of his servant, David. God is good at that. And he shows up at just the right moment. And so Saul leaves. And David escapes and he goes to the caves of En Gedi. That's the close of chapter 23. Chapter 24 picks back up. Saul has already taken care of the Philistine issue and he's back on the trail of David. And he's learned that David is in En Gedi. Now En Gedi is located on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. I have a map here to kind of show you where En Gedi is. There's the Dead Sea there, the Mediterranean Sea on the far other side. And you see En Gedi right there. En Gedi was an oasis in the middle of the desert. And throughout this region are caves and deep recesses. And I'm told that there's a beautiful waterfall and plush greenery everywhere. It's the perfect place to find rest, especially for David and 600 of his men. I found this picture of En Gedi that I want to show you what it looked like. Isn't that beautiful in the middle of the desert? I want to go there, by the way. Um, And so hopefully, maybe one day I will. But you can see there's deep recesses in there. And it's in those caves that David is hiding. Now, verse 2 tells us that Saul is bringing his 3,000 men, and he's headed to En Gedi. And if he ever encounters David and his 600 men, it's going to be a massacre. But you can't factor out God's intervention. So Saul comes to En Gedi, and guess what happens? Nature calls you got to love the Bible, right? Verse 3 of 1 Samuel 24 says that Saul goes into the cave to relieve himself, to go to the bathroom, right? This is in the Bible, y'all. And so, uh, and by the way, my wife is really nervous about what I'm about to say next, right? So, uh, but he goes in there, and this is an important detail. You say, why is this an important detail? Well, it's in this moment that Saul's bodyguards would not go in there with him. Bro, there's certain things I'm going to do to serve you. This is not it, right? This is the line. And so Saul goes in by himself to use the restroom. Now, guess where David is hiding? In the same cave, right, where this happens. And so David is, or Saul is there, and he's in a compromising situation, and David begins to sneak up on himself. And David's friends are like, David, this is it. This is it. This is your opportunity to rid us and you of your giant problem. This is the opportunity. You've got to seize this opportunity. But look what happens. Verse 4, chapter 24. 
It says, and the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord has said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, what do you do in this situation? You got a chance to take care of a massive problem here. Would you have taken Saul's life? It would have made your life a whole lot easier at least at the advice of your friends. He had a chance to put an end to his nightmare, but instead he just took a corner of Saul's robe. Look what happens next, verses 5 and 6. It says, And afterwards David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And And he said to his men, The Lord forbid I should do this thing to my Lord. He's the Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David doesn't take advantage of this situation. He's convicted. He's bothered in his heart. Saul gets up. He leaves the cave. After he gets on his way a little bit, guess what David does? He steps out of the cave and he says, hey, King Saul. And don't you know King Saul's heart sank? Oh, my goodness. David was that close to me. And David shouts out, he says, my Lord, the king, and then he bows before Saul. Isn't that interesting? You see his humility. He calls Saul his king. Remember, this is also his father-in-law. And David goes on to say, I could have killed you, as some were saying that I should have, but I only took the corner of your robe. And David was trying to prove to Saul, listen, I'm not trying to kill you. I'm not after you. You're sick and demented and you're believing lies. If I was doing that, I would have taken advantage of this. And so he convinced Saul of such. And Saul, at the close of chapter 24, he kind of has a spiritual awakening. And he begins to weep. He acknowledges David's kindness towards him. He realized that David spared his life. And he goes on to say, David, you truly are God's anointed next king of Israel. And then Saul makes David promise to something. He says, David, will you promise when you take the throne not to eliminate my family? And David says, I promise. And that's the close of chapter 24. What is it that we learn here from these two uh, scenes in 1 Samuel? There's probably a lot of things, but I want to press into two. Two things that I believe if we will learn, we'll be able to learn how to wait on God's timing. Two important things. First, we must value divine wisdom over human wisdom. You you and I, we've got to come to a place in our walk with the Lord where we value divine, heavenly wisdom above the wisdom of fellow man. We've got to get to this point where David was. Where is it that we tend to turn to first when we need information? We tend to turn to somebody else, right? Pick up a phone. We call a mentor. We call a friend. And what should I do in this situation? But to, that's the seeking of human wisdom. How do we seek divine wisdom? How do we place a higher value on the wisdom of God than the wisdom of just humanity? Now, hear me clearly. I am not saying that God doesn't use wise counsel around us to help us make godly choices. 
He, he does, and we see scriptural evidence of that. My point is this. Do we pursue human wisdom at the expense of divine wisdom? And oftentimes, if I'm honest, we do, right? We turn to fellow human before we turn to God. And so we see both sides, and we see the effects of both sides of this. There were a couple of times in these chapters that David could have listened strictly to human wisdom and acted upon that. Remember when he asked God if he should go to Kyla and his, his family and his friends said, no, 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 no. That's a bad idea. I, I can picture myself in that conversation. I think David goes and he prays and he gets the sense, you know what? I feel like God is leading us to go and defend the city of Kyla. So he goes back and he calls his council of men together and he says, hey, I, listen, I think God is calling us to do this. And I think his counsel said, are, are you sure? I think you've misheard God. Listen, David, you got to think about the long game here, not just the short game. Right? That's the wise thing to do, David. I mean, here we are. We're safe. Saul doesn't know where we are currently. If we leave here, we become very visible. And it, if we go to battle, we become very visible and our location is revealed. And then we're in danger again. I mean, come on, play the smart game here, David. Don't you hear the wise counsel of the people surrounding him? And so what does David do? David says, oh, okay, that's maybe I did mishear God, right? I'm conflicted. So David goes back to God and he says, hey, listen, my men said that this is not a wise idea. I want to confirm it to you, God. Do you see how David is placing a higher value on divine wisdom than he is on human wisdom? That's extremely important. What else does uh, David do? Well, David, uh, he constantly is a man of prayer. He's constantly seeking God's desire. But Saul, on the other hand, Saul has long since stopped seeking the Lord. He chooses to press into the wisdom offered by his intelligence agency. He presses into the wisdom of his own political and strategic leadership decision-making abilities. Saul's sole source of wisdom is himself. It's human. And it ultimately misguided him and ultimately put him in a position where it could have cost him his life. So the question then becomes is this. Okay, we see how David valued divine wisdom over human wisdom, and that was good. We see how Saul valued human wisdom over divine wisdom, and that was bad. So how do we put ourselves in the camp of David? What are some practical ways? How can we actually live this out in our lives here today? I'm glad you asked that question. So I want to take a look at a few different approaches that David took in determining God's will for his life. He used a few different methods. First part of chapter 23, David first prays about it. If you want to seek godly wisdom, you need to pray about it. In, chapter, in verse 2 of chapter 23, it says, Therefore David inquired of the Lord. That word in the original language that's translated inquired means to ask earnestly or better to beg. David was begging God for wisdom. Do you and how often do you, do I, beg God for wisdom and what to do? Then again in verse 4, when human wisdom pushed back, verse 4 says, Then David inquired of the Lord again. He sought confirmation in prayer. 
So he prayed. Then later on, we see David make another use of another method in seeking God's guidance. After the battle was over, he, he asked the priest to wear the ephod, and then he cast lots to determine God's will. And again, we see the point, though. David's trust wasn't in the rocks. He was seeking God's intervention. He was seeking divine wisdom over human wisdom. Then in chapter 24, when David sneaks up on Saul in the cave, we see another thing that David listens to. Listens to the conviction of his heart, which this typical conviction is placed there by God. Listen, I hear people say all the time, what is your heart telling you? It's very dangerous because Scripture says that our heart is easily deceived, that it's actually wicked. And so if we just go with the feelings of our heart, but that's not what David is doing here. David is feeling convicted from God. The heart in this circumstance is deep within his core, in his soul. And so David is cut to his soul. And so he then relied upon that conviction. My point is, David relied on the prompting of God more than the urging of his friends. That's how you seek divine wisdom over human wisdom. What do you rely on the most? What do I rely on the most? Now, I know what you're thinking because it's the same thing I thought as I was rereading the story. I want an ephod, right? I mean, how awesome would it be to just roll the dice of two rocks and go, oh, that's what decision I should make, right? We have a tendency to read that. That would be nice. But in reality, here's what I want you to see. We have things that are way better than the happenstance of rocks. We have access to things that David doesn't have access to. What might that be? Well, first of all, we have access to the Word of God. What you think about it? That David's access to the Word of God wasn't readily available at all times. He certainly didn't have it on his Palm Pilot. Right? He would have to carry massive scrolls in order to consider God's Word. But we have it at our disposal. We even have it upon our cell phones. We have access to God's Word. And that's a very powerful tool. But you know what else we have that David didn't have? We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that at Pentecost, when the disciples were gathered in the upper room, after Jesus ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples. Scripture also tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that when we come to saving faith in Jesus as the Lord and Savior of our lives, that the Holy Spirit indwells the believer at that moment of belief. What is the Holy Spirit's job? The Holy Spirit's job is to convict us, to lead us, to guide us, and to direct us. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And the Holy Spirit does a fantastic job at it. And we have access to the Holy Spirit that dwells within us that David did not have in his day. And so if you're looking for advice, how do I practically value godly wisdom over human wisdom? Let me give you this. You need to first and foremost pray about it. Your position and your posture, my position, my posture in prayer determines what we value the most. If, if we go to the Lord in prayer, that's extremely important. That's number one. Number two, consult God's word. We have in the Bible the full revelation of God himself. And so when we pray about it, we seek confirmation in God's word. Thirdly, 
since the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Where is the Holy Spirit leading me? What is the Holy Spirit asking me to do? How is the Holy Spirit asking me to respond? Then the fourth is to consider the counsel of those around you, the godly counsel of those around you. But I want you to know something. If the first three, prayer, God's word, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, ever contradict the counsel of man, you always go with the first three. Okay? So, so if you want to think, what do we practically consider? You put it like on a scale. What weighs heavier for you? Is it the consultation of God and his word? Or is it limited human wisdom that is prone to fail? We must be a people that value divine wisdom over human wisdom. Second thing that we learn from this passage is to live a life trusting God. We should live life at every turn, acknowledging the truth that you and I can trust Almighty God. God has never failed. He never will fail. God will be faithful even when we're faithless. We should trust God with every aspect of our lives. I think one of the most impressive parts of this passage, at least to me, is how David demonstrates such a trust in God. He trusts God with his life. He trusts God in his timing. He trusts God to make the best decision for him. He's consistent in prayer. He's obedient at every move. He's sensitive to God's direction. And perhaps most of all, he's a man that demonstrates great respect. And respect for God and respect for others. I want you to consider the respect David showed to Saul. When he could have taken his life, he didn't. Why not? Because Saul has done nothing to warrant David's respect. In fact, he's done everything to lose David's respect of him. But what does David call Saul? His Lord. Lowercase l, by the way. His father. Remember his father-in-law? He calls him the Lord's anointed. He even bows down in reverence before the very man that's trying to take his life. And what we see here is David is showing respect for the office of king even when he can't respect the person in the office. David is a man of respect. You know, my observation of our day and time is that demonstrating respect and trusting God and his timing are becoming lost arts. David is an example for us in our day. He shows radical reverence for God, and that radical reverence for God controlled his thoughts, and it controlled his actions. You know what we need in our culture more than anything else? It's that kind of reverence for God. That kind of trust in the Lord. David saw it as God's job to deal with Saul, not his. And that's the ultimate display of trusting God. Listen, have you ever wanted to get somebody back who wronged you? Let me just be honest, in case you're not willing to be honest. Yes. Right? 
But what does God's word say? We want to be someone who trusts the Lord. God's word says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. In other words, it's not ours. It belongs to God. And we express trust in God when we allow him in his timing to take care of that that has wronged us. Have you ever wished evil on someone that is, seems to be your enemy? Is resisting you at every turn? I have. I wish they would just go away. God, can't you handle that? I mean, didn't you call down fire and consume some things? Can you consume this dude for me? Right? But what does Jesus say? Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Oh, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? See, this is where trusting God gets hard, right? I mean, if we're honest. This is, this is the challenge. But listen, beloved, this is something that we need to reclaim as Christians in our world today. Ultimate trust In God, you do what you can at the prompting of God, and you trust the outcome to him. That's it. That's living a life of trusting God. Let's be a people that value divine wisdom over human wisdom, and let's live a life of trusting God and his timing at every turn. And when we wait on God, I'm convinced you'll see God show up in ways you never dreamed, never thought possible. And he will bless you because you followed him. You're listening to Trinity Baptist Church's Hope for the Broken podcast. If you would like to learn more about this ministry, visit us online at trinitytx.org. That's trinitytx.org. Here's Pastor Chris to wrap up our time together. Thanks for listening today. I'm so glad that you found this podcast. It is our prayer that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. It is our goal at Trinity to lead everyone into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have questions about what it means to trust Jesus as the Lord of your life, we would love to connect with you. Please feel free to give us a call at 903-572-1959 or email us at info at If you are ever in the East Texas area, we invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 9.30 or 11 a.m. Thanks so much for listening today. God bless you. We pray that you have experienced hope today. If you would like to support the ministries of Trinity Baptist Church with a financial gift, you can do so by giving online. Simply log on to trinitytx.org and click the Give tab. Be sure to join us next week as we look into God's Word on Hope for the Broken.